Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. According to a report released by the Commerce Department this week, U.S. consumer spending in September sunk to its lowest rate in seven months. This is just the latest data point of many that seem to suggest we may be headed for a recession. Prakash Langani is an advisor at the International Monetary Fund. Before that, he was an analyst at the Federal Reserve Board's International Finance Division. He has spent a lot of time thinking about recessions and how economists predict them or don't. Prakash, thank you so much for joining me. I want to start with, as it were, recessions 101. You know, the other day, my 14-year-old son said to me, Dad, actually, what's the definition of recession? And I got up to my two quarters in a row of negative growth of GDP, and then I, I had to pause. So tell us, first of all, you know, what is the definition of recession that economists use? And also, how did they come up with this definition? Because, you know, two quarters in a row seems vaguely arbitrary. Well, I think the, I think the first thing, uh, if I was uh, in charge, I would do is to ban the word real GDP. I think we should just call it incomes. You know, that resonates more with uh, the general person. So a recession is a year in which incomes fall. And you're right that there's nothing magical about saying they should fall two quarters in a row. We could have picked one or we could have picked three. Two was just kind of a rule of thumb that seemed to suggest that bad things were going to happen. So I think it's better to just think of a recession as a year in which your income is going to fall. That, that's an extremely superior, <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> a, a, a much superior definition of, of, yeah. of recession. Why don't economists all use that considering how much clearer it is? I don't know. I think we got uh, addicted to this word real GDP, which means nothing to your son or to an ordinary person. I think if you told my son his income was going to fall, you'll get his attention immediately. But, you know, I think there is 
you know, each each profession has its jargon. I don't want to be too harsh on my fellow <laughs> economists, but um, it could be know, worse. You could be lawyers. Believe me, right. you can always get worse. <laughs> so uh, a recession basically is is a year in which your income is likely to fall, and that's unusual because at least since the industrial revolution, uh, the last. 200, 300 years, uh, incomes generally go up uh, every year. So that, that's been a good thing that's happened to us uh, as a species. But uh, so, so recessions are unusual, but not that rare. Uh, recessions happen about 12, 15% of the time. So it's something to keep an eye on, and that's why I've been trying to study them. Well, that, that's actually conceptually very interesting and also very helpful. So the first point you made, namely that we treat a recession at least colloquially, like it's this terrible thing. But that's against the backdrop of the assumption that our incomes should somehow always go up. And as you say, it's great for our species that that be the case. But what what underpins that commitment to the idea of, of steady growth? I mean, that's even before you reach the thought that nothing grows all the time. And as you say, 12 to 15% of the time, we're actually not growing. Mm-hmm. But starting with the with the background assumption this is a good opportunity to ask an economist, yeah. why in the view of most people in the field, should we assume that somewhere between you know, 88 and 85% of the time, our incomes will go up? I think um, you know, what's happened is that since the industrial revolution, we've generally found a way of doing things better every year. You, know, you and I kind of find a way of doing our jobs better, aided by technology, aided by our own uh, brains which say, uh, you know, I screwed up on this and that last year, I'm not going to repeat it. I think because of what economists in their jargon call you know, technological progress, um, our incomes have been going up at about 2% a year. In this, I'm talking of the United States now. Mm-hmm. So the you know, United States has had uh, adjusted for inflation. It has had incomes go up 2% a year. And so because of technological progress, now sh- should we always assume that will be the case? Um, as long as you know we can find ways of doing our jobs better, probably. Should we, as we grow richer, get obsessed about having a 2% increase every year? Probably not. But still, I think most people would say having incomes go up at some reasonable rate is better than having them fall. For, for sure, yeah. So let, let me ask you, uh, Prakash, about cycles. So mm-hmm. if we had, you know, a regular prediction of 2% growth over some period of time, mm-hmm. you know, over say 10 years. And yet we had some, we knew that with some probability there was going to be, you know, randomness in the system. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it would go down. Then yeah. we would expect that, you know, again, if you're around 12 to 15%, then more than one, one in 10 times in a 10 year period, we would have a recession. Right. So is that cyclical way of thinking about recessions a healthier way to think about it? In other words, don't panic and think that every recession is the harbinger of things in general getting worse, but yep. just see it as, you know, we're flipping the coin and, and you know, over time it's going to even out. Yeah, I think, you know, that's why you're seeing people worry about a recession right now is because we've had an expansion of eight, nine, ten years. And people know that in the past, at least, expansions have not gone on for 20 years. So I think you're seeing a lot of people correctly worrying about the fact that if you have an expansion that's long in the tooth, it's about time to start worrying about whether it's going to keep going. And uh, I think that, as you say, that is the 
healthy way to think about it is that, you know, recessions are kind of like the hurricanes of economic life. I mean, you know, with hurricanes, you have a hurricane season, so you have a bit of an edge. You know when to look for them. But still, we know that expansions don't go on forever. So having a long expansion means that we should start thinking about is the next one round the corner. And I think it's actually healthy that there has been all this concern about whether we are going into a recession. Speaking about uh, hurricanes and predictions, yeah. uh, you and your co-authors wrote a much cited and very interesting paper, uh, which you published last year, suggesting that economists don't do that well at predicting recessions uh, because they're, on the whole, economists are too optimistic about growth. And so they miss a significant number of the recessions that are out there. Right. Tell me a little bit about what motivated you to do the study and what takeaway we should have from it. Um, what sort of motivated me was, frankly, my own horrible forecasting record. Hmm. So 20 years ago, I was I, I, my job uh, when I was at the Fed was to forecast economic growth for Korea. And, you know, my boss had given me the job saying, you know, God, I'm giving you the job of a lifetime. These countries grow 7% a year, nothing changes. <laughs> and I'm giving you the job of forecasting this. You should be thanking me. And this was, you know, <laughs> 1997. And, you know, people said, oh, something's going wrong in Korea. I said, okay, fine. I'll cut my forecast down from 7% to 3%, which for me was like a huge deal. And people said, no, 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 we think there's something else going on. These were, you know, people who were not even following Korea. These were people who were just talking to friends, reading the newspaper. And right. here I was, kind of the sophisticated forecaster. And, you know, I dug in my heels. I've very grudgingly towards the end cut my forecast to minus three as the year was ending. You know, Korea ended up at minus seven that year. So, you know, I've always been intrigued about whether it was just me being terrible or if right. this was something that all my friends were also uh, subject to. And lo and behold, as you said, I found that the record is, is just terrible. I mean, as you saw in that study, um, you know, we studied 150 some recessions and only five were uh, predicted a year in advance. And you might say that's a very, very high bar to set, but you know, you can lower the bar and still the forecasting performance r remains really bad. And you know, one-fourth of recessions remain undetected even as the year is ending. So it's like forecasters are just not aware that the economy, it will turn out, has been in a recession the whole year. And one-fourth of the time, noticed, they can't even right. tell that the economy. It's, it's only later, <laughs> the following year, the year after the rains have gone, that people will say, oh, it was raining, did you know? Uh, so, but, but that makes it seem a little less bad because if it's so difficult to detect a recession even when it's actually in action, it makes it seem like it would be much more difficult to predict it in advance, right? I mean, as you say, when it's raining, we know that it's raining. Right. So that implies that rain is a binary, which maybe is not true if you live in England or Scotland, maybe it's yeah. always a little bit raining. But I mean, imagine that rain is a binary, either it's raining or it's not raining. And then it makes it easier to detect. And that in turn, you would think would have some effect on the, our capacity to predict it. But if something is very hard even to detect, surely it should be even more difficult to predict. I mean, maybe only a handful out of 153 recessions doesn't seem like a very good success rate. Maybe we just have the wrong baseline. Maybe it should be hard to predict. 
that's the defense that many of my uh, fellow economists offer. I mean, I don't, I don't fully buy it. I think that there is a bit of complacency. I think the, the suffering that in recessions inflicts on people is not really felt by my fellow economists and there's right. a sense who tend of, to be oh, on salaried jobs that you know yeah i think we are protected i mean we are or... i mean many of us are have high levels of education we kind of manage to hold our jobs through recessions i think if we were the common person we would demand that economists try to do a better job i mean you know 50 60 years ago we were completely bad at at predicting hurricanes and you know hurricanes had you used to have major loss of life following that and we didn't we said this is not acceptable because you know people are, are dying and i think we just don't see the damage that recessions inflict in the same way and if we did we would demand that economists try to do a better job i mean you're right that we may not be able to do so with complete success i mean weather forecasters who are predicting hurricanes often as we know get us all worried and then the hurricane changes course and they say sorry false alarm but we don't blame them you know we we say they're doing their best job they're trying to protect us i think economic forecasters should be treated the same way i mean these are people who are trying to protect us from job loss which has you know just as devastating consequences as what hurricanes do i mean you were asking me what got me motivated one thing that also got me motivated in addition to my own poor forecast was that I was unemployed for a year and I could see the effects it had on me. And I've been studying the effects of what unemployment does to people. And so I've become very passionate about saying, you know, we should try to forecast recessions. We should try to take steps ahead of time so that we can prevent job loss during recessions. Well, those are, that's a very fascinating perspective on it. And I, I appreciate that having had the experience of unemployment, must raise your awareness and consciousness. And that actually brings me to the, the question that I, that I wanted to follow up on, which is, let's think a little bit about the incentives of predictors. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that when the meteorologists predict a hurricane and then the hurricane misses us or, or doesn't happen, we don't get that angry at them. Yep. But that goes to their incentives, right? I mean, when, when they predict a, a hurricane and it doesn't come, we just think, instead of directing anger towards them or blaming them for the resources that we might have spent in preparing for the hurricane unnecessarily, we say, oh, we're so glad, yep. we're so overwhelmingly pleased that we weren't hit by a hurricane, that that outweighs any irritation we might feel towards the, the, the meteorologists. And yep. you know, if we expand um, from hurricanes to, let's call them winter storms, mm -hmm. you know, I'm from Boston and I still live in the Boston area, and yep. you know, the prediction of great sizable winter storms is an industry where great profits are made by local media, by local radio and television, because people will watch them if mm -hmm. they predict a storm. Yep. And so they systematically, I mean, I've never read a study about this, but I would bet almost anything that you could show it in a study, that they systematically overpredict storms because it's good for ratings. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, there's not that much downside for them yep. if there's no, there's no storm. They don't internalize the full externality of the full spillover costs of their having made predictions. Right. What about economists? I mean, if they predict recessions, do they have something to lose? I and mean, I'm looking for some motivational account. I'm trying to be a good economist mm -hmm. or a good, you know, rational actor economist and see if there's some motivational explanation for why economists underpredict recession. Yeah, I've 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 been studying that a lot too. I mean, I, I you know, many of these 
forecasters who I've been studying are actually, you know, friends and I, I can talk to them. And for, for them, the reputational loss from falsely calling a recession would be huge. That's, that's how they perceive it. And what they, what they tell me is that they will make a forecast that things could be kind of bad, but they don't go into negative territory. But when they go to meet their clients, they may say, well, you know, I didn't want to move my forecast down into negative, but privately I'm telling you I'm, I'm really worried. So they say they would prefer to do that than to go out and, and make a call. And there's a very good example uh, from some years ago. There's this really nice um, place called the Economic Cycle Research Institute, which really tries to forecast recessions. And in uh, September 2011, their lead guy, uh, Lakshman Achutan, went on Bloomberg and, and said, there's going to be a recession call. He said, uh, we've been telling our clients privately, but I feel I have an obligation to tell everyone else, the public, that there's going to be a recession. And that recession didn't happen. And, you know, for a year, Bloomberg would keep inviting this guy back. He would say, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And then one year later, he had to say, well, it, was, it turned out to be a false alarm. And my sense is that that did not do wonders for his reputation or the reputation of his company. And to me, that's unfortunate because I don't see that he was making that call either to become famous or to make money. He just had already told his clients privately, but he just felt, here, we've just gone through the Great Recession. He was truly worried, his company based on their indicators, that 2012 would be a recession. And he thought it was a public duty, just as with hurricanes, we think it's a public duty of forecasters to tell us if a hurricane is coming. He thought it was his public duty to do so. And the experience didn't end up well. I can picture two different stories yep. about why, in this case that you describe, yep. it's so costly for an economist to predict a recession and not have it happen. So one is a story about safety in numbers. Mm -hmm. right? On this story, it's sort of conventional that most of the time there isn't a recession. And so economists default to predicting that there won't be a recession. Mm -hmm. And then if one person wants to say there will be a recession, he or she has got to put himself on the line go out there. And then if he's right, sure, people might say he's a genius. Yep. But more of the time, he's going to be wrong than right. And it's very costly because he's an outlier. He's, he's, he's stuck his neck out and, right. and others have not done so. And in that story, you might be able to fix this if more economists were willing to predict recessions um, simply by virtue of there being more numbers, you know, or getting a group together, you might be able to fight off that, that cost. Mm -hmm. The other story, though, is the story about self-fulfillment. It might be that we sort of imagine that if enough economists say there's going to be a recession, that that has a recursive effect and helps drive a recession, right. since there is some element of expectation having an effect on real-world events. And so on that theory, we collectively, we really don't want economists to say there's going to be a recession. We might know that they're under-predicting recessions, but we like that because as a social matter, we prefer the optimism because we know that once in a while, too much pessimism can actually bring about a bad result. Do we, either of these stories make any sense? Do either of them correspond to how you see the world? Yeah, no, I think the, the second thing that you mentioned is the only, to me, justifiable reason for caution in predicting recessions because of the self-fulfilling nature. You know, that's, that's the difference between 
economic forecasting and weather forecasting. You know, we take preventative actions, but we don't influence whether or not there will be a hurricane. Whereas with with recessions, it, there can be the self-fulfilling nature. But to me, we are so far from having to worry about that because, as I said, we are in a corner where we almost never predict a recession, even though they happen 12 to 15% of the time. So to me, it's worth the risk of saying, let's try to move to a sort of world where we, we are always somewhat worried about recession. If a recession has just happened, I would say then don't worry about it because uh, you know if recovery has taken hold, it it tends to you know be self-perpetuating for a while and it's fine. But once you get two, three years, four years into an expansion, then you start judging and trying to see what the odds are. So I think the language and the terminology should shift into more about you know what is the likelihood, and then you know to be open about the fact that at some at some times there will be a, a, a divergence in opinion, and then people can decide um, on that basis whether or not they want to make adjustments. So now we're in a moment when some economists really are starting to talk about a prediction of recession. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about some of the indications. Mm -hmm. um, one is you mentioned already that when a recovery has lasted for a good long right. time, it's getting, I think you said, long in the tooth. Yeah. Just statistically, it seems probable that it will that will come to an end at some point because you know if you just look at the probability distributions, it's been X number of years, and so it's probably going to be over soon. Uh, another is the so-called um, inverted yield curve in the right. bond markets. Yep. Um, maybe let's take them in order. Let's start with the just the numbers game. You know, it's been a while. Yeah. And then we'll, from there, we can you can explain the inverted yield curve to us, and we can we can try to look at that a little more closely. Yeah. No, I think the you know the duration of expansions has some predictive power for whether or not there will be a recession. So I think that's certainly one factor. But I think of the other indicators, the yield curve is the most promising one. And the fact that it has inverted now and that it had inverted prior to the previous five recessions is something that we should take into account. So let me run by you what I tried to, I'll give you my attempt to explain to my 14-year-old what the inverted yield curve was and tell me where I, where I went wrong. What I uh, said to him was, look, what's going on in an inverted yield curve is that people who are setting interest rates believe that the economy is likely to be much better over a long term than they expect it to be over the short term. And that's why it's a higher interest rate over the long term than it is over the short term. And that reflects, I suggested, I think maybe wrongly, a prediction that things are going to get worse before they're going to get better, as opposed to the more normal set of circumstances where we think that that something out in the future is more uncertain. Mm -hmm. And in the, the nearer future, we're able to identify with a greater prob probability that things will go well. And so therefore, the usual model is for the interest rates to be the other way around. Right. So where where in that analysis did, did I go wrong? And I'm no, pretty no, sure I think I did. that's that's exactly right. That is one of the channels. The, the one channel that we typically used to say was that the Fed or policymakers had somewhat more information about which way the economy was headed, and they were worried about the near term, and so short term interest rates were were, were being lowered. But the problem this time is that <laughs> short term interest rates have been low for almost a decade now. 
Uh, right. So, so it can't be a good predictor that they think things are going to get yeah, bad. Yeah, it can't be. It the, seems the to Fed. have switched to being some other thing. It's like now it's a feature of political economy. That yeah, they're, they're, so I think there are pressures it's, on the Fed, including from the president. Yeah. But even before this president, other people were putting pressure on the Fed to try to keep the interest rates low and to keep the markets happy. Yeah, I mean, that's a constant of uh, presidential uh, wish list is, you know. <laughs> right, every president would like every that. President every president wants, would like yeah. people to be able to borrow yeah. for relatively little money, yeah. right. Yeah, so going back a bit to our, our discussion on the recession, I think at this point, given the imprecision of our forecasts, it's ridiculous to be worrying about decimal places on our forecast. I mean, you know, changing a forecast from 3.4 to 3.2 is just meaningless given the range of errors. So I think... If we shift the discussion more to likelihoods of bad things happening like recessions, then the discussion will also be more about what policy steps can we take now either to keep the recession from happening or if we see a recession happening, what steps will we take? And I think fiscal policy uh, is going to play a very big role, uh, namely finding ways to put money quickly in the pockets of uh, people and companies. And I think I see a bit of hope there because all this talk about whether or not a recession will happen is provoking at least some very uh, sensible people to think about, you know, what would we do if if we really started to think that a recession was on its way or if we recognized it early enough, you know, what would we do? What what do you, you consider to be the most the most promising? I think um, money in people's pockets is what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. I think that uh, s- some of the things that were done during the Great Recession, kind of, you know, either through some kind of cash transfer or some other schemes, uh, which turned out to be pretty promising in countering uh, the depth of the Great Recession, are what people are talking about. So, um, you know, uh, Heather Boucher at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth and Jay Shamba of the Hamilton Project. Uh, at Brookings, they have a new book basically on, you know, how to be recession ready. And to me, again, this goes back to the kind of analogy with hurricanes. I mean, we don't know when it's coming or where it'll hit the most, but we ought to be recession ready and think about what schemes we have. And indeed, the, the most promising thing in my view is to just have ways of providing direct stimulus, basically finding ways of giving cash to people who will be affected. So there are people, at, including at the Fed, who are thinking about some kind of rules that would go into place, which says if unemployment in a certain region goes up X percent, we would immediately start giving checks to people there and so on. And I think right. that that's exactly the way we do with hurricanes. We say, who's getting affected? You know, Where are the floods? Uh, what do people need? And we provide that help. And I think that's what we should be doing with recessions. Well, that's a that's an optimistic way of thinking because it offers us some tool to to address it. And I want yep. I just want to close by asking Prakash, how bad do you think this one is going to be? I mean, you, you've been pretty clear that you think a recession is is coming. Do you think it will be a long one? Do you think that it has the capacity to be more than a recession? And that obviously will have serious consequences for the policy recommendations that you make? Well, first, to be clear, so I don't lose my own job, is <laughs> everything I've said is my view and not the IMF's. I think the IMF sure. is still uh, predicting you know, 2% uh, growth in the United States and, and mostly and, and, and elsewhere. And, you, and you've told us exactly why, so go, <laughs> go on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, making 
clear that these are my own views. Yes, but my own views are, are based on the fact that, as I said, expansions that get long in the tooth uh, tend to end. And so in terms of probabilities, I think we should be prepared based on the yield curve, based on a couple of other indicators, uh, consumer sentiment. There is the Institute of Supply Management's index. I think based on all these, there's enough reason to be prepared for one. My own personal view is that you know this doesn't need to be a deep recession. I think we went through essentially the next Great Depression uh, just a decade ago. So I think with preparedness and particularly with an attitude that says we have to think about what policy responses we can put in place, uh, we should be able to ride it out. Thank you very much, Prakash. Those are uh, very, very helpful points. And I'm very, very grateful to you for your description. Thank you. Thanks, Noah. It was a pleasure. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Now for our sound of the week. That was the sound of victory, specifically 
victory in the National League pennant for the Washington Nationals, sending them to the World Series for the first time in the recent history of their franchise. The truth is that for a Washington, D.C. team to go to the World Series is a kind of world historical event. The last time, and indeed the only time, a baseball franchise in our nation's capital won a World Series was in 1924. That's nearly a century ago. And Walter Johnson, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, was still pitching for the club. Then, not only was there a long period of mediocrity, but ultimately, between 1960 and 2005, there was a 45-year drought of any baseball at all in Washington, D.C. That's right. The national pastime was not played at the professional level in the nation's capital. This opportunity for the Nationals, then, isn't just something for D.C. fans, long-suffering though they may be. It's actually about something much bigger. It's actually about the question of whether baseball truly is and remains a national pastime for Americans. The statistics make you think that it isn't really the case any longer. There was a time when nearly every American child, or at least the boys, played baseball in a serious way. There was a time where baseball dominated national consciousness. During World War II, if American troops wanted to make sure that their lines weren't being infiltrated by clever spies from the other side who happened to speak English, they would ask them baseball questions on the assumption that every legitimate American would know the answers, while a foreigner might not. Today, there's just no way that questions like that would work. If we have a national sport in statistical terms, it might be American football. And if you look at the sport from the United States that's garnering the greatest degree of world attention, that would be professional basketball. Baseball, in some sense, has come to be seen then as old-fashioned, as too slow, as unexciting, in some way not as up-and-coming American. The fact that the Washington Nationals now have a shot at the World Series is not going to save baseball from the doldrums to which it has to some degree entered. It might, however, remind us that baseball could still have a central place in our national consciousness, even without needing to dominate all of the other sports. After all, even Washington, D.C. doesn't stand in the same kind of civic position relative to the United States as it once did. True, it's still our nation's capital. Still, many tourists come and visit it to try to learn about civics, but the city itself is roiled in political controversy. An impeachment inquiry is going on. No one right now would think that Washington, D.C. is a shining ideal of what the capital of a great republic should be. Under these conditions, the fact that the World Series will come to the capital is just a pleasant recognition that our system still has some nice parts to it. Lots of countries in the world play baseball. Some today play it better than the United States. The unique association of baseball with the country and with the capital is not what it was. And that might just be a good thing. Maybe we can be a little more realistic about what sport is, a little more realistic about what politics is, and a little more modest about whether the United States of America can ever function as a shining light to the rest of the world. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. 
I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it. Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep.